Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. This week, we're talking to Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Uh, Jennifer, you wrote about a state lawmaker, Representative Tony Hassenbeck, and her job at a nonprofit. Tell us about that. Right. So Representative Hassenbeck worked for a short time last year for a nonprofit called Scissortail Development Corporation. One of their main programs is Choice Matters, and Choice Matters does a lot of advocating for certain legislation, uh, especially bills that expand or promote charter schools and other um, private school scholarship programs. You, uh, in that story, wrote that she she kind of tiptoed into lobbying. What did you mean by that? I want to be clear. Representative Hassenbeck was not a lobbyist. She described her employment as working with parents mostly, but Choice Matters, a lot of what they do is grassroots lobbying. It's indirect lobbying. They do things like um, promote certain bills. They try to get, you know, their followers, their social media um, presence. They will promote the bill. They will encourage people to reach out to their lawmaker and vote a certain way. Well, you you can't be a lobbyist and a legislator at the same time, right? So is, is this sort of indirect lobbying illegal? There aren't a lot of rules that address indirect lobbying. There was an effort a few years ago to try to add some rules, and the legislature shot it down. So any employment situation, well, certain employment situations can be a conflict of interest, but there are a lot of factors. Okay, so um, first of all, can you maybe in a, a couple of sentences summarize again what grassroots lobbying is and then talk about how that differs from direct lobbying and, and does the group have any ties to direct lobbying? Sure. So I would describe grassroots lobbying as attempting to influence legislation by involving the public. And a lot of times this looks like a, an email campaign or a social media campaign. And there's two main parts to it. One, they identify the specific piece of legislation, the bill number, and they also identify their position on it. We are against this bill. We are for this bill. And then they encourage their followers or whoever is reading this post to contact their lawmaker and encourage them to vote a certain way. They often make it very easy to with, um, say, a form letter that somebody could just fill out really quickly and it goes directly to their lawmaker. So indirectly, I'm encouraging people who might have an interest in the bill to contact their legislators about it rather than contacting the legislator directly myself like a lobbyist would. Right. Okay. And um, this same group, though, also has ties to direct lobbying? They do. Um, Robert Ruiz, who is the executive director of Choice Matters, he's the president of Scissortail. So he leads both the nonprofit and the the organization under the nonprofit, um, the program is what Choice Matters is. Uh, he's been a registered lobbyist for several years, 
Now, he did let his registration lapse this year, so at, at the moment he's not a registered lobbyist with the state. And even when he was the last couple of years, he his spending was very, very minimal. Okay. And you, you talked to Representative Hassenbach, right? What did she say? I did. I, I interviewed her several times, and she defended her work with Scissortail. She said it was a chance to help families on the other side of, of the equation, um, you know, rather than the legislative side, which is more broad. It was more of a direct help where she would work with individual families. Um, she said she admires the group's mission and continues to support them. Okay. Is she still working for that group? No, it was a pretty short amount of time. I think it was just under three months that she worked there. She said she left because the commute from Elgin was too much. Okay. And that was, when was that, in the fall sometime? It was. Mm, okay. And what got you on to writing this story? I had a reader send uh, me a photo from the Choice Matters Facebook page of Representative Hassenbeck leading a presentation with Choice Matters parent group. Um, it was interesting to them and the reason we wanted to look into it was because she was inside the Capitol wearing her state lawmaker ID, but also working for this group. So that's the kind of potential conflict of interest that we wanted to look into. And, you know, the, the job at Choice Matters was paid. And I think that's a big part of the, um, of the issue. Well, talk about that a little bit, right? Because the, the story really raises the question of whether this is a conflict of interest. And at the heart of that is public officials collecting a salary for their job at the legislature, $47,500 a year, like everybody else, right? right? But then it raises the question when you're wearing your state lawmaker ID and you're at the Capitol, um, but you're also getting paid by another organization and you're... Uh, perhaps doing some work for them at the same time, um, doesn't that raise the question of whether you're using your position as the legislature to personally uh, profit? Right. I mean, the whole idea of the conflict of interest, you really have to look at that person's motivation, which is difficult. I mean, that's something that really they know most closely. But the ethics expert that I talked to said that because we hold lawmakers to a high standard, they, you know, it's a it's a powerful position. They're elected officials, so they do, ha you know, have certain standards that they they need to meet. And doing this, um, being a lawmaker and working for this nonprofit that has, you know, certain sides on legislation, it really does call into question like who who she's really working for. Or at least where the priorities are at any given moment, right? So, right. Um, and in in your story, you kind of found that that there may not be anything illegal about that particular combination, but that there's some concerns about how it looks. That's right. And we think that's kind of the the what got some people up in arms is it just looks bad, even if it's not strictly against the law. I think so. And I think some would maybe say there should be rules when it comes to indirect lobbying. I mean, like I said earlier, there was an effort a couple of years ago to add some transparency to that. Um, it, it's becoming more common, I think, to use this type of grassroots lobbying 
there's certainly a big push um, to, to use it. And um, it's pretty effective. I mean, it's gotten a lot less expensive to put up this form letter and to very easily send out hundreds of emails at once, right? Whereas in the past, it might have been more you know, time-consuming and costly if you were having to handwrite a letter and mail them to each legislator or something like that. Great. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer's uh, story about the question of lobbying and ethics at oklahomawatch.org, along with all her other investigative work. We're talking this morning to Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. Whitney found that the Oklahoma Domestic Violence Coalition misspent a lot of federal grant money. Whitney, how'd you hear about that story? Well, I've been covering domestic violence for a few years now, and someone who follows my reporting tipped us off that there had been an audit and that victim services could be in trouble based on those findings. So I did a quick Google search and immediately found the report, which had been published on the Department of Justice website a few months earlier. That coalition obviously kept things pretty quiet, which is why we didn't know about it before then. And what did the auditors find? What you, would you read? Well, according to the report, the Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, they mismanaged more than $886,000 in public money while it was under the direction of Candida Mannion, which was from about 2015 to 2020. So over that five-year period, taxpayer money that was supposed to support victims of domestic abuse and sexual assault instead was being spent on things like employee and board member vacations. Give us some other examples of of how that money was spent and where it went. Well, some of the more egregious findings were in the coalition's travel expenses, according to this audit. So Candida Mannion, who was the coalition's director at this time, she used taxpayer money to travel to conferences in popular vacation spots like Southern California and Florida. Um, some other former employees told me that she would call the office while she was at conferences around 3 p.m. to let them know, you know, she had just woken up. She had not attended conference sessions that day and had just decided to start doing some work for the day. Um, in 2009, Mannion and one of her employees skipped a day of conference sessions in Southern California to go on a wine tasting tour instead of learning about um, helping victims. And in another case, she's accused of uh, using public money to send board members to a Disney Resort. Employees told me she paid for those board member trips as sort of a kickback so that they wouldn't question the other spending um, that she was using money for. Well, so, so who is Candida Mannion? What do we know about her? Yeah, Mannion was hired as the coalition's director in 2014, and I've actually interviewed her several times over the years for other domestic violence stories. You know, she's really a face um, that promotes prevention of domestic abuse and sexual assault here in the state. So um, I, you know, I talked to her several times. We often swap stories about, um, you know, things we were hearing from victims of abuse. And I, we both lived in Norman. So I ran into her a lot at public events around these topics. Um, she didn't have any experience with victim services prior to this position. Um, but she did always have, you know, a piece of paper in her pocket with 
um, stats on domestic violence and sexual assault and things were happening in the state. So she seemed um, truly outraged by what was happening to people. At least that was my takeaway. Okay. You talked about some of the travel expenses the auditors questioned. Were there other kinds of expenses the auditors noted? Absolutely. Um, Not all of the expenses were travel related. Another big chunk of money that's being questioned was for employee salaries and benefits. In that case, the problem is not what the money is being spent on, but how it was being documented, or in this case, not documented properly. Employees, for instance, were keeping timesheets, but Mannion wasn't reviewing them or signing off on them as a supervisor. I saw years of timesheets that had never been reviewed by her Um, And that's why those costs are being questioned now. And Mannion wasn't keeping any of her own timesheets either. In fact, at one point, she asked a board member to retroactively sign off on some of her own timesheets during that audit. Okay, can you tell us a little about the organization? What do they do? Well, the Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault has been around for about 40 years now in Oklahoma. It's a nonprofit that supports the programs that support victims. So domestic violence shelters, rape crisis centers, counseling services, and other programs that help victims, they can pay a $1,000 a year fee to become members of the coalition. And then those programs, which are scattered all over the state, including, you know, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, as well as rural areas. Areas, they uh, receive coordination from the coalition. So the coalition provides things like training to folks who work at those entities. Um, they work with lawmakers to help develop public policy, put on awareness events. They're even teaching law enforcement and prosecutors about collecting evidence and working with witnesses in those kinds of cases. I talked to a program director at a Lawton shelter who told me that they really need the coalition's support to continue doing what they're doing. Okay, and and most of the coalition's budget, even though they they charge $1,000 to join, but most of their budget comes from that federal grant. Is that right? That's right. They make $1,000 off of each organization that's a member of theirs. Right now, they're about 28 members, so that's about $28,000 a year. But obviously, that's a, a pretty minor portion of their budget as compared to what they're receiving in federal dollars. And how common is it when when a, a big federal grant is involved for federal auditors to uncover that kind of misspending? Well, it's, uh, you know, audits in general are fairly common for these types of organizations that are receiving public money. But the audit results in this case are pretty extraordinary. I found a couple of recent audits of similar organizations in Montana and South Dakota where auditors did find some discrepancies in their spending. But the amount in question here in Oklahoma, it's about 10 times higher than those other states. So the scale of misspending here is really on another level. And have there been any consequences for that? Absolutely. So a couple of months after auditors told the coalition's board members that they had found some of this misspending, Mannion was fired and given two months severance. And then three other employees quit around that same time, which left only one person working for the coalition. Um, So the coalition's board hired an interim director and also an attorney. And I'm told that those folks are currently working with the Office on Violence Against Women. That's the organization that provided the funding um, to try to sort things out. So what does that look like for the organization going forward? 
Well, we don't know yet. Um, it's up to the Office on Violence Against Women to decide what's going to happen next. They could make the coalition pay back all of that money. They could make them pay back some of that money, or they could forgive the entire amount, nearly $900,000. They could suspend or even ban the coalition from receiving federal money in the future, and criminal charges could be filed, which recently happened in a similar case at a nonprofit in Montana. So the coalition could even be disbanded, um, leaving victim services without any support. It's really a waiting game at this point. We don't know what's going to happen or when it will happen. What has Candida Mannion had to say about the audit? Yeah, Candida um, did not respond to any um, text messages. I messaged her on social media and called her several times. Never heard back from her or her attorney, who I also reached out to. Right. And really, the big question here is if that uh, potentially puts all that grant money in jeopardy, uh, what does that mean for abuse victims in Oklahoma? Well, ultimately, it means it could become harder for Oklahomans who are being abused to find help and to find a safe place to stay. We already have really high rates of child abuse and domestic violence here, so this could really be devastating for Oklahoma. Well, thanks, Whitney. In this segment, we've been talking to Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. You can read this story and all her other investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment, I'm talking to Lionel Ramos, who covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. Lionel's been working on a story about how immigration is policed in Oklahoma and how that's changed over the past few years. Lionel, what was the big takeaway from this story? Yeah, so the main thing that I learned was that fewer people are being held in ICE detention around the country and the state, and fewer of them have been arrested for nonviolent crimes. Uh, in Tulsa County in 2021, for example, 48% or the, there was a 48% drop in the total number of detainees, and then 78% of them were uh, arrested for driving under the influence, which is a viable reason for deportation under current federal enforcement priorities. Okay, you mentioned that there's been a decrease in the number of detainees. Uh, what's the reason for that? Right. So I spoke to uh, immigration advocates, uh, Dream Action Oklahoma and uh, New Sanctuary Empowerment Center or Centro in Tulsa. And I also spoke to some local law enforcement, Sheriff Figueregalado, uh, for example. And two main things kept popping up. Uh, a, change, a change in the presidential administration, uh, which has meant a more relaxed immigration policy at the federal level. And the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, which kept people off the streets starting in 2019. All right. You mentioned the change in uh, the White House. What has that meant for immigration policing here in Oklahoma? Well, the president can set his own priorities for what kind of person gets deported after being arrested. It's based on the level of a threat a person might pose to their community or the country as a whole. Um, just very quickly, someone who's a threat to national security, for example, might get deported much more easier than someone who has ties to their local community, um, maybe has a job or something. Uh, under Biden, the reasons for which someone may be deported have narrowed. So local agencies have had to revise their contracts with ICE to accommodate for that. Okay. You know, in the story, you mentioned contracts. Tell us about that. Yeah. So going back to the Tulsa example, the, the county was engaged in, in two contracts with ICE up until 2020. One that allowed deputies to identify and detain someone on the basis of their immigration status once they're in the jail. And another that allowed the county's main jail, David Almas, to hold immigration detainees for the federal government. Um, t together, 
the the contracts worked to um, be able to identify, detain, and hold, and eventually deport someone um, who was arrested locally. Okay, and and there were uh, revisions to those. Can you give us uh, an example of what some of those revisions might look like for a local agency? Yeah, so now in Tulsa, the officers can still identify undocumented individuals, but they have to flag them and and uh, ping the ICE office in Washington D.C. and then wait for confirmation from that office to detain the individual, um, and that takes a while and. Uh, <laughs> So if ICE wants to assume custody, they have to pick up the detainee from the jail within three days. It's how the new contract works. And then they take them to a federal facility. If they don't want to assume custody because that person doesn't fall under the enforcement priorities at the national level, um, that person may bail out or their county-level charges may be dropped and they can be released. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, what do we think the the real effects of those changes are going to be? Yeah, so like I said earlier, those those agreements work together to identify and hold someone until they face immigration court. Um, so Sheriff Vic Regalado said that while fewer people are being deported, it's easier for serious criminals to be released too. Uh, legally, the county can't hold someone longer than 48 hours um, for charges they receive at the local level. So they they have to be <laughs> identified by the by the local jail and then sent to ping by for ICE, and then ICE has to agree, and all of that takes time, and the person might be released before that's all resolved. Okay, so potentially, uh, in addition to some uh, minor things or immigration-only uh, issues, it's possible that somebody with some more serious offenses could slip through those cracks and end up back out on the streets. That's what Sheriff Regalado says. He gave me an example of uh, someone that the Tulsa County Sheriff's Office arrested um, in 2019, early 2020, and he was a, a known drug runner, and they arrested him, and he actually ended up... <laughs> Uh, bailing out and disappearing within three hours um, before the confirmation from ICE to detain him was received. Okay. Hey, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned immigration advocates. What do those people make of these changes? Yeah. So advocates say that while aggressive immigration policing has slowed down, uh, the continued existence of contracts like the ones I described leave room for racial profiling by police towards people in Hispanic immigrant communities. Um, the people I spoke to said they've stepped back from, you know, the kind of protesting they were doing a couple of years ago where they used to stand out in front of David Elmas and, and peacefully protest. Um, they did, they stopped because of the new policies, the dangers of the pandemic, but they worry about, um, a conservative president coming in and changing the laws again. And then the contracts <laughs> can just be revised to fit those new enforcement priorities at the federal level. Um, so they worry about aggressive policing coming back is, is really the main thing. Okay. And and how about Hispanic Oklahomans in general? Yeah. So among Hispanic Oklahomans, there's there's a kind of a base level of distrust in local law enforcement, um, especially those who um, are undocumented or are um, non-citizens, residents, permanent residents. Um, that distrust has existed for many years and for a few different reasons. Uh, but the people that I spoke to for this story uh, have generally agreed that people are more relaxed now um, with, with this new administration um, compared to when compared to Donald Trump's administration. Um, and they feel protected from deportation. They don't feel like they have to worry about leaving and not coming back to their house. All right. Thanks, Lionel. You can read Lionel's story about immigration policing in Oklahoma and the changes going on there, along with 
all of his other investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.